Hello and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings. And you can find me on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be great to see you there. However, to the show today, and a guest that I've wanted to have on the show for a long time due to the truly unique way that he's built his business. Therefore, I'm thrilled to welcome Wade Foster to the hot seat today. Now, Wade is the founder and CEO at Zapier, the startup that moves information between your web apps automatically so you can focus on the most important work. A couple of incredible achievements from Zapier. They've scaled to a phenomenal $35 million in ARR, and they've built a team of over 130 people, check this out, all without a central office, and they've done this with just $1.2 million in early stage funding from the likes of Bessemer, Y Combinator, and DFJ. I do also want to say a huge thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro to Wade today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we dive into the show today, if you have a digital product, whether it's mobile or web, Amplitude's product analytics helps you understand what your users are doing, iterate and ship product faster and drive product metrics like engagement and retention. And Amplitude's analytics dashboards are so flexible, yet easy to use to answer any question that you have about user behavior. No SQL required. Top product teams at PayPal, Twitter, and HubSpot use Amplitude to get the insights they need to achieve their product goals. And you can download your free copy of the Product Analytics Playbook to get 155 pages and worksheets teaching you how to learn from your analytics data to build a really sticky product that grows your business. And you can check it out at Amplitude.com forward slash Sasta. That really is a must. Likewise, we all know that user education is one of the most powerful ways to increase engagement and retention at scale, yet it's often put in the too hard basket. Well, Alevio is that powerful platform that exists to remove this burden, empowering your users to self-serve contextually relevant help via their support widget and embeddable elements, increasing retention and engagement whilst also reducing support load. And Alevio even tells you what content to add or fix and why based on usage trends from your users preventing content rot and increasing coverage, which we all know is an ongoing challenge. You can also integrate with your existing support stack for content, access to live chat, support tickets, and more. And you can discover why companies like Atlassian, AdRoll, and Heap use Alevio for continuous user education with 20% off your first year at elev.io forward slash Sasta and use the coupon code GOHARRY. I would love to see you use that. What a coupon code. But enough from me, and I'm now thrilled to hand over to Wade Foster founder and CEO at Zapier. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Wade, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to Jason Lemkin for the intro. I'm so excited for this one. So thank you so much for joining me today, Wade. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, Harry. Uh, That's so kind of you, but I'd love to kick off today with a little about you and how you came to make your way into the world of SaaS and came to found Zapier. Yeah, so this would probably been 2008. I started working at a small startup and I was using things like MailChimp and WooFoo, QuickBooks to run this little bitty company. And I I just love the idea of being able to play with these fun, easy to use apps. And this was around the time when the housing crisis had burst. And so like no one was really hiring. I'm from Columbia, Missouri. It was like tough to get a job right out of college. So I'm like, well, maybe I should just start learning to build stuff myself. And I teamed up with my now co-founder, Brian. We started working on a whole bunch of different little apps and freelancing for different things. And one thing led to another. And we realized that people often asked us to build these one-off integrations. We did a PayPal to Quick 
QuickBooks thing. We did a Wufu to Zendesk thing. And we thought, hey, seems like people need to connect all this ecosystem together better than they can. And so Brian messaged me on iChat one day and said, like, why don't we try building something like that? And the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> and, and what history it's been. I mean, my word to see the scaling has been incredible. But I want to break the interview today up into a couple of different segments. So starting on the theme of management, then discussing fundraising or, or lack of in your incredible case, and then finishing sure. on the team and their roles. Does that sound good? Works for me. So starting on the theme of management, you said before that startups maybe need to put in place traditional management sooner than they normally do. First question for me is, how do you define traditional management and what does that structure look like to you? Yeah, traditional management in my mind is everyone has a person they report to, person report to does weekly one-on-ones or some regular cadence of one-on-ones with them. They're talking to them about what their own individual goals are. They're talking to them about what the company goals are and they're making sure that the person can progress in their career and help the company progress in the same way. So you end up looking as the company grows, it starts to look like kind of a traditional org chart hierarchy. That's more or less what I define traditional management as. Mm-hmm. Do you think traditional management is ever inefficient in terms of too many layers, the inserting of middle managers who actually just kind of delay processes often I hear in, in the world of startups? You have to be really big, I think, before you get to that. So most startups are probably not that case. Like you would have to have hundreds of people in your company before there would be like so many middle managements or ineffective middle managers, really what you're talking about, to cause like slowdowns or things to get tricky or slow the pace of the business up. So with the obvious benefits of kind of putting in place that structure, why do you think startups fail to put this in place? Well, I know why I didn't do it early enough. And it's because you come from a place where like, you know, I don't want a boss. Like I don't, I didn't get into a startup to have a boss. And you think, hey, you know, maybe we can do kind of a more flat thing. We can do a more, you know, hanging out at the office, like everybody's having fun. Like, you know, we're all in this together sort of thing. But what you quickly realize is you never talk to people about what career growth looks like, what success looks like. And for a while that can work, you know, under 10 people or so, it works pretty well. Like you kind of get some of this management by osmosis, but later on, like it doesn't happen. And so you kind of need to start putting some of these elements in sooner rather than later, or else it's going to be a bit of a culture shock to kind of like put this in place if you don't think about it really well. Speaking of kind of putting it in place, if they do and one does decide to put it in place, where did you, where do you see others maybe going wrong in establishing this traditional management structure? You know, when we did it, I think we got pretty lucky. You know, I have two co-founders. And so when we started to say, hey, like we're going to start doing weekly one-on-ones, we're going to start talking a little bit more about some basic project management aspects, things like that. It was my co-founders that helped share the load. And there was a lot of respect for my co-founders and people trusted them. They already knew that they had the best interest of the company in mind. So it wasn't so much like we were rolling in a bunch of like outside managers or anything like that. It was people that had been here that knew what was going on and things like that. And so the team felt very comfortable with them. It didn't feel so different to have Brian or Mike talking to them than it did for me. Can I ask, how do you compare the kind of core founding team really being the head of this kind of traditional management structuring versus bringing in maybe more experienced execs who've done it before at these early stages? You know, I think for us, it was super helpful because we had built every piece of the company ourselves. Like we knew intimately, you know, whether it was code or customers or partners, we knew the entire history of everything. And so when it came to coaching, we could point people to where all the problem spots were. Whereas an outside management team, they don't have that. That's going to 
take a while for them to ramp up and get that sort of understanding of the product, of the market, of our customer base. We just already had that. And so when we when we started working on it, there was no learning curve. We just continued moving as quickly as we could with the three of us. And I think that was really nice because we could move, kind of keep it lean and mean with the three of us running up the company. No, I absolutely love that kind of founding focus. I do want to discuss the other element of the sentence there, really breaking it down. You said sooner than they do. <laughs> I'm intrigued. How do you determine then the right time to start thinking about and then installing this structure? You know, I think when you get to like eight or 10 people, you really got to start thinking about it. You look at a lot of you know management theory, org theory. When you get over eight people or so, it's hard for one person to manage it. You don't have enough time in the day to do one-on-ones and things like that. And so you really have to start thinking about what a second manager might look like past eight or 10 people. So I think that's really the right time to do it. We didn't actually do it until probably about 25 people, which I still think is sooner than a lot of folks do. But even looking back, I wish we would have done it around that 10 person mark. And so that's kind of when I think is the right place to do it. Speaking of that kind of 10 person mark, is that where you see the transition from the very early jack of all trades mentality in the early days of startups to the highly specialist segmented roles? Where does that kind of transition come? I think that actually happens much later. I still think you need kind of jack of all trades quite a bit inside a company. Well, even at our size, we're at 130 people a day. And I think jack of all trades still has a, a plays a huge role in the company and the, the culture and all that sort of stuff. The reason being is that you are in any startup, things are constantly changing. Your role is constantly changing. The people around you are constantly changing. You need folks who are adaptable and can learn really quickly. And folks that are jack of all trades tend to do that pretty well. Whereas a highly specialized person, you know, say, say someone who's like the world's foremost expert on like, I don't know, network engineering or something like that. Like they'll be great at that thing. But if your startup doesn't need that thing at that point in time, they're going to struggle more than maybe a jack of all trades would. So I think unless your startup definitively needs a highly specialized person, you should probably opt for finding people who are adaptable and good at learning because those are the people who are going to be able to shift with you as the company shifts. And then, you know, when you realize that, yeah, our company specializes in a certain thing and we're always going to need that type of role. So for us, like this might be API management, like this is core to our business. So if we have someone who is the foremost expert at working with thousands of APIs, that role is going to exist now and into perpetuity for us. So it makes some sense to have a specialist in that kind of role versus still a lot of other areas of the company doesn't need that. You said there about kind of shifting with the company and the people being able to. I have many guests on the show who suggest that actually people are destined and and really specialized at certain stages and there isn't that kind of plasticity of person to move between stages. Would you disagree with that element and believe that people do have the potential to? I definitely do believe people have the capability to maybe move more so than folks tend to talk about, right? You'll hear folks say like, oh, this is only a startup person. They couldn't do a hundred person company or a thousand person company or something like that. I think people have the ability to flex maybe more than folks give them credit to. Though there is some truism to the ability to operate at different scales. So for example, you know, an executive on a hundred person team probably isn't an executive for a 10,000 person team. Like that's so wildly different that there is going to be a lot of different experiences and different learnings for those types of interactions. But I think if, especially if you do a good job at like this, getting good management structure in place, getting coaches for folks, they do have the ability to level up and move between stages a little bit more fluidly. Now, we were chatting before the call about my immense respect for everything that you've achieved with Zapier, and even more so when one recognizes that you've raised 1.3 million in funding, looking at where you 
you are today. It's simply astonishing in today's ecosystem. And you've said before to ignore fundraising. So as an investor, I get nervous when I see someone of your success saying that. <laughs> but naturally, I want to start here with the why. Why do you hold this stance towards fundraising? So I don't know that ignore is maybe a strong word, but certainly use it as a tool where necessary and really think critically about what your business needs to grow. Extra financing may not be what it actually is. I think a great example of this is you look at a company like MailChimp, who has never taken a dime, and they exist in perhaps one of the most competitive SaaS ecosystems, which is email marketing. And yet, they are the winner in that market. However, classic theory might say, oh, well, if it's a winner-takes-all market, you need to raise every bit of money you possibly can get your hands on. But here we have, and perhaps one of the largest SaaS ecosystems, email marketing, is completely counter to that. So I think you really have to think critically about what are the needs of your business and is money truly the bottleneck for you? As we've scaled, we've asked ourselves, what do we do with more money? Is that the bottleneck? The answer to that was, yeah, money is our bottleneck. We had other bottlenecks in our company that we had to fix first before money would ever be the thing that is slowing us down. Can I ask, what do you think is a time where bottlenecks do get in place? Because, you know, one could legitimately look at a lot of brilliant products like Zapier, like MailChimp and go, well, you know, the product works, people pay for it. A lot of people pay for it. You could apply that to a lot of different products. Where, where do you think there's realistic cases for when funding does make sense? Well, I think the number one bottleneck that exists is the organization's ability to ingest new teammates. So it's really, really difficult for organizations to double headcount in a year, for example. Some companies have tripled or quadrupled headcount in a year. And I've never done that personally, but that seems, I know how hard it is to double and triple or quadrupling seems almost impossible. There is a ceiling on how much your company can handle from new elements coming into the organization. So that in and of itself puts a cap on how much money you actually need because you can only spend so much in payroll. So at minimum, that's the thing that you need to hire for. Now, when you start thinking about when is the time that funding starts to make sense, I think it depends on the business. And if the business has heavy capital requirements up front. So I think, for example, some enterprise heavy organizations are probably going to require a little bit more capital up front because of longer sales cycles. If you have a longer sales cycle, you need to get a few sales folks into the door. You know it's going to take a long time to get it, so you kind of got to accept that cost up front. Or if you have like hardware costs or physical assets that you need to purchase up front, things like that, I think are when you start to think, okay, what is the amount of money that I can put into this that gets this thing off the ground and gets kind of the flywheel wheel starting to work for us. You said about the scaling of organizations and team sizes there. I very usually talk about this with heavily funded SaaS startups. Tell me, how did the scaling look like with you, with your lack of funding and desired choice to not take funding? How did that look in terms of scaling a headcount if you go over the so, years? So we've gone from the last two years, so I guess 2016, we started with 32 and ended around 65. And then 2017, we started at 65 and ended around 130. So we basically doubled every year, which is comparable. 
comparable to a lot of our VC funded siblings. And we've had to learn a lot from them, to be honest. There's not a lot of bootstrap companies that have grown as quickly as we have. So I, you know, a lot of my friends are founders of VC backed companies and asking them, like, how do you handle all these new folks? How do you think about setting up like your people ops team and your HR teams? And how do you uh, make sure to train up the next wave of management? Because that kind of stuff I do think is the most likely place where your company will have bottlenecks in your growth is around its ability to ingest new people. Speaking of kind of the ingestion of new people in the team itself there, I read the fantastic articles that stated Zapier paying employees $10,000 <laughs> to leave San Francisco. So why such a strong incentive package to leave the Bay? So we've been 100% distributed from the very get-go. Uh, and one of the things we realized was we had pretty early on, we had two people who were in the Bay Area and they interviewed, went through our hiring process, they joined Zapier because they're great at what they do. And within a couple months, they moved. One went to Florida, one went to Pennsylvania. And a big reason was family. They had kids. They decided that the Bay Area was not conducive to the lifestyle that they wanted for their family and for their kids. And that kind of got us thinking because we had other folks interview who had expressed discontentment with life in San Francisco. And I get it. It's not for everybody. And so we started, one of our engineers thought, hey, people relocate folks all the time. Why don't we pay to send people wherever the heck they want to go? And so at first I kind of was like, "Ah, I don't know. Like I live in the Bay Area. I like the Bay Area for a lot of reasons. I don't know if I want to stick my neck out quite that much, but we ended up proposing this thing, uh, you know, $10,000 to leave SF. And it really just struck a chord with everybody because I think there's just so many reasons right now where folks are, are kind of, like I said, discontent with how things are in SF. Does that not also reduce the comp packages that you have to pay due to kind of a cost inflation of SF and just kind of adjusting those costs according to whether you live in Texas or the mission? Not really. We don't adjust our comp packages based on where you live. You could do that. Uh, some distributed companies do do that. They'll you know pay local markets because they know it'll work out. We haven't really chosen to take that path, but you certainly could. The bigger place you get your cost savings is we don't have an office. And so the folks that are paying for San Francisco rent for these massive offices, uh, like we don't have to spend that money. And so we can reinvest that in our company in interesting ways. Okay, so no office. Why are you such an advocate of this model and the complete distributive workforce mode? What are the benefits? Sell it to me. Sure. I think the benefits are one, recruiting, you have access to world-class talent anywhere. You know, you think of San Francisco is, you know, what, a million people in the city proper and then in the broader Bay Area, a couple million, four or five million. I don't know the exact number. Good size population, no doubt, but you're also competing with some of the best companies in the world. You expand your recruiting capability to everywhere in the world, and all of a sudden, you have a lot less competition, and you can hire anyone you want. So I think that's a big reason. Number two, your retention is going to be a lot stronger. When an engineer can have a bad day, walk out of their office and across the street, start interviewing with three other, four other companies, that's tough to compete with. However, if you go hire like these people all across, you know, in the United States and in the world in different areas, they're going to be really excited to work for you because they don't have that type of opportunity. You give them the opportunity to live in a place they love, to stay with their family,
family, treat them well, pay them well, uh, and they're going to stick around. Our retention rate last year was 94%. So people just incredible. If you give them a place where they can do their best work, then they're going to stick around, which is that's a big deal because the Bay Area is common for people to jump every two years. And every two years, you have to retrain your organization and reteach them how you all work. When you get some of that continuity, you get some of those efficiencies of scale from having vets stick around for a long time. So those are kind of a few of the two biggest benefits. There's a whole slew of other benefits, I think, as well. But those are the two big ones I've come to love. Can I ask, my big concern with the model is kind of the benefits of collaboration and being in one space together. How do you look to encourage mind sharing in this kind of inherent team collaboration with such a distributed workforce? So this is a common criticism or common worry, I guess. And I think it's a bit unfounded. There's been some research that, you know, the best brainstorming actually happens independently, happens solo when you can sit and think, write down your own thoughts, and then you can come together as a group and maybe discuss it later. So we can jump on Skype or in our case, we jump on Zoom internally to discuss things. So we have a lot of that going on. Slack and other collaboration tools have made it really easy to discuss and get together and share and collaborate over ideas. But I think the principal argument here is most of the work you do is heads down. And that, especially for engineers, it's heads down work. So 90% of your time is heads down building the code base, helping customers, that sort of stuff. You should optimize your work environment for that because that's the bulk of what you're doing versus optimizing for maybe the 10% where you need to get in a group and collaborate and jam on things. So it looks all very rosy and it looks to have scaled incredibly well, but nothing is ever as rosy as the, the picture that is presented. So tell me, what <laughs> have been the big challenges in doing this successfully? Where have been the stumbling blocks where you guys have really had to get the founding team together and go, how are we going to address this? You know, I think it's a lot of things that a lot of fast growing companies deal with. So it's, hey, we've got to introduce a new layer of management or we have to introduce these new policies to help people think about you know stuff like time off or reimbursements on certain things or how does career paths look and titles look how do pay scales look these are things that every company has to go through and like we've had to handle those as well we have to think really hard about communication that's a big one for us because it is all remote there's not many comparable companies we can compare and contrast with so that's a place where we do have to kind of reinvent the wheel on how collaboration and communication happens so that's something we're always thinking about as a company is, is this working for this? If not, how should we change it? Is there an experiment we can change here? So that's something we're constantly asking ourselves and trying to work on is just to make the communication and to help people be more attached to the company on a daily basis. It's something we work on. Can I double click on that and say, what kind of communication structure does one have in place and kind of communication tech stack does one have in place to ensure this seamless kind of idea sharing and collaboration amongst the team? So a big one for us is we have this core value default to transparency. So all of our Slack channels are public and we work in public channels in Slack. So that means every bit of information about any project, you can go read up on what's happening on it. You can jump in and contribute on it. And this really helps when your teammates are all over the place, because if they need to jump in and extend what you're working on, they don't have to hunt you down. They don't have to find the documentation. Instead, they can go into Slack or various other tools and dig up the discussions around things. And that helps them take action 
immediately without having to consult you on various bits. So that I think is the primary one is to really think about how the communication gets sent to these public channels. Now, one of the interesting things we've run into now in challenge is, okay, we've done a good job at that. Now there's a lot of public communication. How do we onboard new folks into this new style of communication where there's a fire hose of information coming their way? And how can we help them learn to adapt to this style of communication and not drown in it? Absolutely. I mean, that's a challenge and a half. How are you addressing that currently? A lot of curation, a lot of coaching and training, like as part of onboarding, we teach people how to use Slack. It seems kind of crazy. It's like, oh, everyone knows how to use Slack. You just type in a box. We actually go through and we'll teach you how Zapier uses Slack because it's a little different. So things like that go a long way. I would love to move into my favorite of any interview, though, being a special Wade 60 Second Saster. So I say a short statement. You give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? Works for me. So why should everyone on the team do support? Because your customers pay the bills. And so everyone should know what it's like to work with the customer. How do you look to scale yourself as CEO? It's often the hardest challenge. I talk to CEOs who are a year ahead of me once every six months and ask them, what'd you do right? What'd you wish you invest more in? A subsequent question, not on the schedule, but who's your biggest mentor and how did that come about then? It changes over time. (laughs) (laughs) Who would yours be now? My granddad has always been a big mentor for me. I always talk to him when really got tough stuff going on. Tell me a moment in your life that's maybe changed or served as an inflection point in the way you think. I mentioned this earlier, but 2018, housing bubble bursts, tough to find jobs. I had to really rethink, like, what do I what do I want to do with my life? And realize, like, to really stand out, you have to be the best at what you do. And so I really rethought my own career path then. And then let's finish with, what do you know now that you wish you had known in 2008 at the very beginning of Zapier? Tough to say, because if I knew what I know now, I'm not sure I would have kept going. So uh, <laughs> I like kind of the blind optimism we had back then. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more on that. But Wade, as I said, so much respect for the incredible journey. And thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Harry. So much fun having Wade on the show there. And if you'd like to see more from Wade, you can follow him on Twitter at Wade Foster. That really is a must. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta on Instagram. You can find us on Instagram at hstebbings1996. As I said, it would be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, if you have a digital product, whether it's mobile or web, Amplitude's product analytics helps you understand what your users are doing, iterate and ship product faster, and drive product metrics like engagement and retention. And Amplitude's analytics data dashboards are so flexible, yet easy to use to answer any question that you have about user behavior. No SQL required. Top product teams at PayPal, Twitter, and HubSpot use Amplitude to get the insights they need to achieve their product goals. And you can download your free copy of the Product Analytics Playbook to get 155 pages and worksheets teaching you how to learn from your analytics data to build a really sticky product that grows your business. And you can check it out at amplitude.com forward slash Sasta. That really is a must. Likewise, we all know that user education is one of the most powerful ways to increase engagement and retention at scale, yet it's often put in the too hard basket. Well, Alevio is that powerful platform that exists to remove this burden, empowering your users to self-serve contextually relevant help via their support widget and embeddable elements, increasing retention and engagement, whilst also reducing support load. And Alevio even tells you what content to add or fix and why, based on usage trends from your users, preventing content rot and increasing coverage, which we all know is an ongoing challenge 
challenge. You can also integrate with your existing support stack for content, access to live chats, support tickets, and more. And you can discover why companies like Atlassian, AdRoll, and Heap use Alevio for continuous user education with 20% off your first year at elev.io forward slash Sasta and use the coupon code GOHARRY. I would love to see you use that. What a coupon code. And as always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.